Hey everybody, this is Charles Zane. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. I am here this week with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hey there. Cinematographer and filmmaker Todd Blankenship. Hey. The editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman, is not with us this week. So we're going to try as hard as we can to get this show canceled. Uh, This is cancellation week here at No Film School. We're going to try and have some hot canceled takes. So our topics today are human resources, hiring, firing, managing teams in the film industry. It's something all filmmakers need to pay attention to and care about, and we don't talk about enough. And then we've actually got tech news again. It's been like a month, but IBC is coming. And like literally five seconds before this, I started getting the embargo NDA releases for RBC. Like I got like two this morning already that people are like, Hey, I've got this embargo news. Can you sign an NDA? So like it, it is coming. IBC stuff is rolling out and we're going to be talking about Fuji's XH2 with no S and what's different about that and the full size XH2S. Uh, they're the same sensor size. It's just more expensive. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our first subject this week, human resources, hiring, firing, and the film industry. Why did we want to talk about this? So a lot of people have jobs where they never hire anyone and they never fire anyone. Like you get a job and you're like, I'm a teacher or whatever. And you are an accountant, you're a doctor, and like hiring and firing is not part of your life. If you work in entertainment at any level, hiring, firing, managing teams, managing resources is always going to be with you. If you're a director, if you're a DP, I mean, honestly, if you're a first AC, you're going to occasionally be the one hiring the second AC. It is something that affects pretty much everybody who works in entertainment in some way that we have to learn hiring. We have to learn what to look for. We have to learn how to evaluate collaborators. And like, You know, as Kubrick used to say about acting, directing actors is 90% casting. And casting is hiring. It's hiring people. It's evaluating people that you can work with who can give you what you need for a project. So this was a subject that we'd wanted to dig into. I think we've teased it for the last three weeks running. So here we are, and we wanted to sort of talk about the process. And one of the things I'll say, I would say I'm about 20 years into my career. I think I did my first professional work. No, my first professional work was like 20. 2006, after film school. I did work before film school, but I don't think I got paid. I think I was just like, please let me do this thing, please. So I'm like 15 years into my career, let's call it like that. And I think about hiring way differently than I did 15 years ago. 15 years ago, I was all about vibes. I mean, we didn't call it vibes then because that was before vibes was what everybody called everything. Mm -hmm. But I was all about like, all right, well, you're my friend. So of course I'm going to hire you on this. Yeah, Like we are friends. And so we should work together as often as we can. And it's funny, for about seven years now, I've worked in higher ed as my day job. I teach at a film school. It's great. I'm teaching a 35 millimeter class this fall, and it is so much fun. <laughs> so, sorry, that was an aside, but it's I, ugh, Panaflex is out. It's great. But, you know, an academic hire is a year-long process. It is so rigorous, and it's been really amazing and honestly informed my process and made me more rigorous in my hiring because it's like, I'm, I'm not looking for friends. These people might, right. like... People I work with might not end up being my friend. I'm looking for people that I can collaborate with who can deliver properly on a project that I need them to deliver. And the higher the stakes are for me, the more important it is that I'm finding collaborators that can properly deliver the things I'm looking to get delivered. And I'm, you know, I was talking about this in class the other day where like, I'm way more rigorous than I used to be. Like it used to be like, 
if a buddy of mine was a DP recommended a gaffer, I would just be like, oh, well, I trust my friend's recommendation. That's great. But now I'm much more like, all right, well, let's have a meeting. And like, can I see some of the records you've kept from previous productions? Like, mm-hmm. can I see some like overhead lighting breakdowns you did? And it's not just about like, I want to see what their lighting is. Cause obviously I'm going to be able to guide that when I'm the DP, I can guide the gaffer. I'm also looking to see like, is this a person who keeps notes? Right. Like, right. I need a gaffer that took a lighting diagram down so that if we have to do pickups, we have that documented. And there's a lot of gaffers who do those notes really rigorously. And there's some gaffers who don't. I feel like that is a sign of sort of maturity being able to, as a, as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, because historically, like I've been only working on these like indie projects where I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm so lucky to have these people come and work for me. Like, I need to host them and make them feel great. And, you know, even when I'm paying at indie rates, to be fair, I still felt like obligated to them versus having them feel obligated to the project. And I, it never occurred to me to like interview people outside of like my DP pretty much. Uh, And I would get on calls with people and sort of pitch them on joining the project, but it never felt like, and what are you bringing to the table? It was always me being like, and this is why it's going to be so great to work on this, which kind of, you know, almost feels like it's taking away from the the project. And we've talked about the only ego on that should be there is the ego of the creative project itself. And we should all be working around it and building a team around it. I have been really lucky to to hire people who know more than I do especially in my early days. And I think that I attribute that to some of the successes I've had, but yeah, I I totally need to like shift the mindset when it comes to hiring because, you know, coming from the world of client services and being somebody who's like anxious, if not everyone's having fun at the party, like that's not going to yield the best project, the best end result. I mean, it's a, it's this weird balancing act where like, I want to make sure that we are having a pleasant shoot because I don't think it's necessary to have a stressful shoot. You know, there are people who are like, who, there are people who use the fact that we're shooting a movie as excuse for awful behavior. And I'm like, you know, I never want anyone to cry on one of my shoots. Like I want to shoot reasonable hours and I want to do good work. But yeah, I mean, as someone who had that same thing of in my twenties, like if I'm throwing a party, I want to make sure everyone's having fun. It was really a big part of my early shoots where I wanted to make sure everyone was having this great, wonderful, rewarding growth experience. And it's like, well, fundamentally, like we're all here to make the movie. And we all have to do what it takes to make the movie. And I need to be evaluating people to make the movie. I mean, I, I'm always wary of, of parallels between work and dating, but I'm going to go ahead and make one anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. and following the theme of getting canceled. And there's this shift I think a lot of people go through when they're dating, when they first start dating, they're in their 20s. Like, it's at least partially about, like, trying to impress that other person. You know you're interested in them, and you're, like, trying to, to be like, I'm going to show you my best self. And then at some point, you grow up a little bit, and you're like, oh, dating is also for me to find out about you. Yeah. Like I have things I'm looking for in people and I have things I, I, I want about a partner. And like, just because you are very physically attractive doesn't mean that like, I should already assume I'm interested in you. Like I want to find out more about you. And I think that's sort of a thing that you go through in hiring where you're like, Oh, as I mature, I'm like, I'm in this interview, not just because I've seen your work and it's beautiful, but like, is your work the right work for this project? And is your work style the right work style for me? And the, the the truth of the matter is, like, I have lots of friends who work in the industry because we all work in the industry. And there's some of them I would work with, and there's a lot of them I wouldn't because, like, I like to work a certain way. I am very focused on low stress. That is, like, a big thing for me. It's like, I like, 
I like shoots that do not feel like a panic and that do not feel like chaos. I like shoots where I feel like I have a lot of room to like work with my actors that like create a nice safe space for creativity. And I really like shoots where like you are not punished for exploring things. And like that rules out a lot of potential collaborators because there's people who are like, nope, I'm very structured. I'm getting things done. And like, you know, and who like, it's just a different working style. So I do think it's like an interesting thing. And then the flip side, there's this advice that comes from the tech industry, which is hire slowly and fire quickly. Like the people you hire are the most important people you work with. So you want to take the longest possible time you can to make a decision because it's going to be so important that you don't want to rush it. And this is so true in casting and crewing where you're like, you don't just, you keep looking and looking and looking to find the best people, but you also need to have that. And like, this is actually something that I have not done well is firing quickly. I have, you know, the advice in the tech industry is the second, you know, someone's not working out, you have to let them go and replace them with someone better immediately. In the tech industry, they always have money to throw up problems. Mm-hmm. But like, I've definitely suffered through productions where like someone was bringing an element that wasn't helping and was hurting. And in retrospect, a lot of my biggest regrets are people I didn't fire because I'm like, oh, you were not actually helping the production, but either I was avoiding the conflict or I was afraid we couldn't replace you or whatever. And I was like, all right, well, we'll just all, I'm very good at the like Midwestern, like we'll just suffer through it. Like we'll just, I am really actively trying to pay more attention in the next phase of my career to, to like, oh no, you are not working out. We just have to get rid of you right now. Like hiring slowly and firing quickly. It's hard. It's a difficult thing to do. Especially because it often feels so personal to let someone go, but it it really, it maybe it, it's just a working style thing. And I think if you take the pressure off of, you know, saying it's a, it's a, it's a you problem, it's just a, this is the dynamic and this isn't working out for us. It feels like it takes the pressure off. And I'm like sort of mentally coaching myself through this process of what I would do to like take that pressure off because I, I'm the, I'd feel guilty for or what am I not doing to make it work? But I also think that if you're somebody who's wondering it, what am I not doing right to make it work, then you're probably a pretty good collaborator. Yeah, you you brought up um, the comparison with like dating. And for me, the way I handle things, I don't do a lot of like hiring as it relates to like things where there would be like human resources involved and all that sort of stuff. Like I, I haven't done a lot of like like job job hiring but like for crew related things like i am very much so like I, it's very like i'm i'm a man of few friends and i'm a man of few people that i really trust and so i i think it's a problem i definitely need to you know especially as i grow i need to get better at it but like i have like six people <laughs> that if i'm doing something they're going to they're they're going to be the first people I call and I don't like I just need to know that what they're going to do is what I ask them to do and and if they like it's funny cuz I've been thinking a lot about this cuz I've been you know I've just, just been doing a lot of gigging recently and just kind of going out to a lot of other people's shoots and you meet a lot of people along the way where you know the the pleasantries that you exchange is like yeah if you have anything going on like hit me up and it's funny cuz there's just like very clearly in my mind a thing that goes, okay, I'm not going to call that person. And then there's like sometimes where I'm like, yeah, that person's going to be part of my team now. And it's funny, like thinking through like, what are the differences of those two different things? You know, it's like, 
and for me, it's like it can be something really subtle. Like it can be something where it's like it's like they just sort of like spoke up when it's it was it was out of their turn, and like they started talking to the client or something. And it's like, no, you don't talk to the client. You're just supposed to be holding the camera. Like that's only for the producer and director. Like. Or like, you know, one time there was this younger, younger guy and he started like talking to the talent about like, he was, he was operating and he starts being like, yeah, do that, do that. I'm like, bro, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> like, you're going to get screamed at, you know, it's, it's just funny. Like, I, I, I really feel like in, in terms of like crew environments, like I, I very quickly go like, okay, that person, and I, I should probably allow room for people to grow or, or maybe pull, pull them aside and say, Hey, Hey, you shouldn't do that. You know, but I don't know. I, it's, it's just like. Just there's so much to be said about really being aware of am I being easy to work with and am, am I like just in terms of making yourself hireable because you'll you'll notice like if there's if there's people who bring you out to almost everything they do then you're doing a good job but if you start noticing that like you know you go out on a gig and then that person you you can see on their Instagram that they've been doing other gigs but they haven't called you back for for whatever it was you know, just start looking at like, what did I do anything or what, you know, I hope, I hope I did a good job on their set, you know? And is there a space where you can ask for feedback? Hey, I noticed that you're hiring, that you're continuing to work and didn't call me back, which is totally fine. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it was like working with me because, you know, in every other industry, you have quarterly or annual reviews where you get to learn what other people think of your working style. And we don't really have that. I also, to your point, Todd, I think sometimes there's power in understanding a relationship where there is like healthy creative tension and being okay with that sort of like ability to work through things. But also like there's a point where you, where it's like, oh, actually, this person is just difficult or they're not being solution oriented or they're bringing up a problem and they're not bringing any solutions. Now streaming only on Disney plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record breaking Eras tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Have you ever wanted to watch something and it's just not available in your region? Have you ever been curious what UK Netflix or maybe some other country's version of some of the popular streamers has available that your local one doesn't? Well, there's something called NordVPN. And by using NordVPN, with the click of a button, you can access all kinds of content that maybe you didn't even know existed. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. So use my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool, and you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. We all love to binge shows, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. We all love watching and streaming all these shows, but we also care about our privacy and NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. And they've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. So say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. 
Even if you download an infected file, threat protection will kick in and delete it before it makes a mess of your computer or whatever device you're using. So don't forget that there is actually no risk to you by trying this because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So give it a try. If you like it, great. If you don't, you get a full refund and you can pretend the whole thing never happened. Check out my link, nordvpn.com forward slash nofilmschool to get your subscription started today. Yeah, it's, it's I, I think really quickly, it's, it's, I think I've, I've kind of figured it out in my head. It's, it's so much an attitude thing. It's so much like a, a willingness to learn. Like if you, if you want to learn and you want to get better, then you go up a hundred billion percent in my book. But if, if you seem, if you like walk around, like, you know, everything and, and you know, what I say goes and all that, then, then I'm like, I'm going to delete your, your phone number out of my phone. Cause I, I just can't, I don't put up with that. That's it. And, and I'm, I'm very much like Charles. I, I like a very low stress environment. So if people start being, you know, snippy about things, it's like, okay, that no, no more of that. So yeah, I think, I think it, there definitely should be more transparency about like, Hey, I didn't, I, you know, pull, pull someone aside. Like, Hey, I didn't like when you did that. So don't do that anymore. Okay. But again, if you have, if, if the person has that willingness to be, be like, Oh, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, it's like how they respond to that moment is so key in, in hiring to me, but it's often very clear. It's very clear in my, in my eyes. Like if someone is really there to basically serve the project and not serve themselves and, you know, and so far as like, you know, obviously they're there for financial reasons to, to make money, to pay their bills and whatnot. But yeah, it can be a very mentally exhausting experience, especially if you're just, you know, freelancing and you're out there doing gigs and, and wondering why, you know, your phone hasn't rang in a while. It's very, very difficult. And it's, you know, sometimes it's your fault. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes whatever's sort of going on just isn't swinging your way. And, and that happens too. But, you know, I, I, I definitely think there's just so much to it where it's just about attitude. Like if you're, if you're on set, just have a good attitude. It's not that hard and, and just be there to learn and get better. And like, you know, obviously uh, be open to any sort of feedback. Cause I think I've, I've dealt with a lot of people who I just know if I said like, Hey, don't do that on set. They'd be like, Hey, Hey, I, I don't care what you have to say. You know, like, it, it, okay, sure. Sorry you know, and have a bad attitude about it. And it's just like, well, okay, you're probably going to struggle in this industry. You know, that's just, you, you got to just have a better attitude. And I also wonder if that, you know, in the hiring process, if you set the tone early on in that first conversation, you know, hey, this is how I run a set, like a no asshole policy always, but open line of communication. And also what is the best way to communicate feedback? for you in the moment after, of course, there might be something that we need to like make a decision on and, and knowing where the end of the line is, is definitely, I've been very fortunate to never work with a DP or anyone really who's like, it has to be this way. And actually I take that back. There's, uh, you guys remember when I came to you with the problem about the crazy producer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> where it was, I was the hired one, which is interesting because I didn't have the power beyond like forcing us to sit down and have a conversation about our working styles. And, and it's taken a lot out of me to manage that project and manage up and manage down that project. 
So it's a grain of salt for actually whether I'm going to work with this person in the future. And the answer is very likely no. <laughs> but you you hit the nail on the head there, though. You you had to pull everyone aside and have a have a talk about it. Like I I have a firm like rule on set when there's like any sort of tension. Like just stop. Like you're going to save yourself time in the long run. Yes. You could you could have three hours of everyone being miserable and pissed off at each other, or you can just pull the person or people aside who are causing the issue and just be like, hey, let's hash this out real quick. Let's just figure this out and let's talk it out. If you can't calm down, I'm going to have to ask you to leave the set for a little while. Just go for a walk or something. Like, and and then when you get back, like that that negative energy will be gone. And it's just you know, it's you you have to just communicate. I, I'm such a firm, firm believer in just, you know, upfront communication about stuff, especially as it goes with hiring. Like, I mean, like I said, I don't put a lot of effort. If someone is having a bad attitude, I don't put a lot of effort into those types of people. I just don't hire them again because I just kind of, yeah, no asshole policy. Like, come on. Well, film is an interesting place for so many reasons, because one way that we do a lot of our interviewing is by working on sets with a lot of other people. Like if you're out gaffing a whole bunch, you meet so many other first ACs. And then when you bump up to DPing something, there's usually like 10 first ACs, you know, and you already know who you want to go to. And there were no interviews. You've just been on sets with them for the last couple of years. And so the process of gigging itself ends up operating as like an informal interview process in the film industry, which I find really interesting. But also like, it's not just bad attitude. It's like, I'm looking for people who like read a room well. Like I remember once there was a second AD on a job I was shooting that really wanted to get into cinematography. And, I, and I'm always happy to answer questions. I, I love chatting. It's fun. But like there'd be a time crunch and like the first AD would be like pushing for a time crunch and the second AD would be like, oh, so what are you doing with the meter right now? And it's like, you, you, you got to read the room a little bit, guy. That was one of the moments where I, like, I did have a conversation where I was like, one thing you should pay attention to is when you ask questions. Because you have a tendency to ask questions at a time when I am not ready to answer them. And you should like try and pay attention for the moment when I can answer things. But it is interesting, like, what is our obligation as film employees to give that feedback? Like going back to something you said a little while ago, Gigi, where you were like, when do you ask for feedback? Like people didn't bring you back. Like, and like the film industry has no, or the like set industry, obviously, if you work at Paramount, there's quarterly reviews. But those of us who like make stuff. We don't have clients who tell us why they didn't hire us again if they didn't. We don't have clients who tell us why they did hire us again for four years. They don't, like, it's not built into our industry. And it's interesting. I think the best thing to do is to try and get in with people who do hire you regularly and then look for them for guidance on how to grow. But it is really tough that, like, it, it is yet another barrier to entry to the film industry that it is expected there's a bunch of stuff you know even at the entry level. And especially at the entry level, you don't have a robust network of rabbis that can guide you up. You sort of have to come in with someone already having given you the like, well, here's how this works in the beginning thing, which usually comes from like relatives or friends already in the industry. So it, it is really tricky. I just also wanted to say another thing, which is trying to avoid cliche toxic behavior. Like uh, on a shoot I was doing in June, it was my wife's birthday and I had plenty of time to stop and get flowers if we didn't run over, but we ran over. And so I had to send the PA to get my wife flowers, which just felt like the most self-indulgent. Like, I was like, God. and I like, I, I apologize profusely. I, I gave him an extra like bonus that day. I was like, I'm so sorry. But like, we're running over and the flower shop will be closed and it is my wife's birthday. And I remember once when I was in the 90s, I heard this director say, and I'm not going to say who, because other than this story, I think this is a nice person. But this director, I, I saw talk 
uh, said on every show, he hires his friend to be a PA and he fires them on the first day because he wants everyone else on the crew to know that they can get fired at any time. And I remember in the 90s being like, well, that's a fucking dick thing to do. I don't know if it's like, and I've thought, you know, 25 years later, I still think about that insanely dickish. Like, I want to remind you all I can fire you at any moment, stay on your toes thing to do. Such a weird thing because there's no, there isn't, like, this is more discussion of management and working with people and collaborating than I think a lot of filmmakers ever do. And we're only halfway through the episode. As a uh, avid, have we talked about the Harvard Business Review books the that t- they sell in the airport? The 10 Guides of a, of a Good Manager one? That and managing yourself and, you know, pretty much anything that they put out, which are just these like essays from the Harvard Business Review publication compiled into a into these like soft cover books. It's great, great read. And and I I forget that this type of thinking about management is often not even considered in the film industry. And there are so many people managing people in this world. Again, a world that doesn't have HR for the most part. And yeah, I think uh, I highly recommend those, especially on a plane ride. They're great for planes and you can get them at any Hudson News anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think it is vital to, you know, I was, uh, I'm writing curriculum docs right now. And uh, one of them I was just writing was like all of the soft skills that don't get taught And this is one of those that like a lot of the people that I work with who've gotten to the highest places in the industry, there's this weird thing where like we hear one funny anecdote about some director being an asshole and knocking over a coffee cart on set. And I think it encourages a lot of people to think that that's how directors and producers and people in power act. But like a lot of the people I know at the highest levels of the industry that have made it there and stayed up there have put some real effort into genuinely managing other people well and being very careful about their hiring process. I do wish that we would find some way to do quarterly reviews. Like, I don't know. I can't imagine a DP being like, all right, guys, in between every, you know, every three months, we're going to sit down and I'm going to talk about what we've been doing and what haven't we been doing. But I do think it's something that like could really be wonderful. Like in film school, we do it after your big productions. We have postmortems where we talk about what worked well and what didn't in the crew and what people can learn. And the idea of trying to find a way to do that professionally, to acknowledge Atul Gowanda is a writer for The New Yorker, and he has a really great article on coaching. And he's like, I'm an incredibly successful surgeon, and I've been doing this for 20 years, and I've been teaching this one surgery for 10. And then he hired a coach, and his success rate went from like 98% to 99%. And he's like, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but 1% in this surgery is actually like pretty great. Like, that's, that's, I don't think it was a life saving surgery, but he's like, this is, a real change in outcomes for the rest of people's lives because I'm 1% better at this surgery. And so the idea of like lifelong coaching, the the idea that like if Tiger Woods can have a coach, everyone, everyone can continue to try and grow is an interesting thing to try and think about. The problem is, is a lot of corporations use those quarterly reviews as a way of like firing the bottom 10% of performers and abusing people. So finding a way to foster a, like, it doesn't feel like a cultural revolution self flagellation session but like what can we keep working on to keep growing i I used to hire this key grip hero who was great who at lunch would videotape setups and then look at the video at home to see how we could have done it faster and simpler wow he's a true hero yeah he was amazing 
he had the most beautiful business card I'd ever seen. It was like this beautiful painting. And like, yeah, you like, so literally at lunch, you just like, he'd be in there. And this was like 2005. So like, it was like not a phone camera. It was like, he brought a video camera to set, to videotape what we had done. so that he could think about like, could we have done this more efficiently? And I was like, you're fucking awesome. That's and awesome. I bet that guy's still working. He's like, <laughs> I would be. He's like watching game film. That's awesome. Yeah. And like, there's no reason we shouldn't keep going. Like, there's no reason we shouldn't keep trying. Improving. Actually, that reminds me of um, Ryan Thomas, who is a DP, but he also runs a rental company, like a gear rental company in the Bay Area. And um, he there's a uh, book that he recommended to me called like the three minute something. And in it, it's about managing and empowering employees to save like, oh, three seconds is the three second something to like look at how they can save three seconds a day. And he would kick off every single day for a year. And every day there's like a meeting with his staff that's like, okay, what solution can we look for to save three seconds in our workflow? And it's sort of employing the Toyota method of making cars as opposed to the Ford method of making cars. That's the background of it. But it wasn't until he had held these meetings for a year that somebody brought a solution that actually saved three seconds. And now like years into holding and empowering the people below him, there's all these solutions being made. Like historically in the rental room, they were only, they weren't able to hire women because the gear that had to be lifted was too heavy. But then one of the employees was like, oh, I'm going to reconfigure how we're storing the gear and make it so it doesn't require somebody to lift these heavy things. They can just shift it onto a thing with rollers to move it. And now they can hire women, which is, or, or people who are, don't have typical like strength. And, and like, that is, that was an employee of his that he empowered to come up with this solution. And it's like, wow, that is like, talk about amazing management style, like empowering bottoms up solution oriented thinking that then allows for a more inclusive hiring environment. Like it blows my mind. And I'm like, so thrilled to know that there are people who are thinking this way in this industry. All right, guys, we're back with tech news. It's been so long, but I'm here to share. So this episode's dropping, I believe, Thursday afternoon. This news is embargo lifting Thursday afternoon. So I'm going to make sure it doesn't li uh, lift before that. But literally just now announced for shipping September 29th, Fuji has announced the X-H2. Now, a lot of you guys are thinking like, okay, well, didn't they come out with an X-H2S back in May? They did. They launched the X-H2S. It's a $2,500 camera. I'm a big Fuji shooter. I think Todd also shoots Fuji. So, you know, we're a little biased here. When they first launched the S, like, usually once you add that modifier to a camera, it's a good sign there's going to be other cameras in the platform. Like, you wouldn't do an X-H2S and never offer, like, an X-H2 or an X-H2R or something. So they finally came out with the X-H2. And honestly, it's, like, slightly less exciting for film shooter for motion shooters but still a little bit exciting for us. And honestly, exciting for me because now I'm just understanding like, oh, okay, this is what the X-H2 is. This is what the X-H2 is, 2S is. And I have a better sense of like how they relate to each other, which makes it easier for me to make a decision as I upgrade. I'm shooting right now on an X-H1 and I'm ready to go X-H2. And now that I know what the sort of roadmap is, it gives me a better sense of what we're talking about. So I would say that it's just called the X-H2. But I would say you should think about it as the X-H2R for resolution. So if the S is for speed, which means that's the faster camera, the plain old X-H2 
is higher res. So it's a 40 megapixel sensor, which is like, it's batshit for an APS-C camera to have yeah, 40 nuts. megapixels. Wow. It is nuts. And it does pixel shift. So you can shoot 160 megapixel still images with it using pixel shift. Wow. Which is, it's, it's a lot. I'm going to be honest. It's probably too much for most of your lenses. I think there's only going to be a few lenses, like the newer X-series lenses, if you go in and pixel peep, are really going to resolve to that full 40 megapixels, where you go in and you zoom in and you're like, oh, I'm seeing the limit of the 40 megapixel resolution. I'm guessing most lenses, like the early X-series lenses, and like if you use an adapter, which I use all the time with like pretty much anything vintage, it's not going to resolve 40 megapixels. Like That's just not something that anybody making a lens in the 80s was trying to do. Seven stops of internal image stabilization, 8K, 30P internal ProRes recording. What? So without going out to an external thing, 8K, 30P, 4K, 60. (laughs) And um, if you want to go to 240 frames for slow-mo, you can go to HD, like full HD in in ProRes on the internal card. Like not H.264, not some wonky thing. Yeah, they're not doing the XAVC bullcrap anymore. You can also, you can still shoot to that if you want the smaller file size, but yeah, to the CFast, because it's got a CF Express type B slot, and like, so you can oh, shoot pro. I, I feel like yeah. we need Todd's reaction, what, to be like a reoccurring reaction. <laughs> what? what? Oh, if we got one of those what? audio boards and we yes. programmed a bunch of drops to it, where I could yeah. hit a drop, and we had yeah, another we, we drop that. that was we like, want one. It'll signal to us non-tech folks that this is a big deal. This is cool. (laughs) All right, George, adding to the list of purchases for this podcast, get me an audio, uh, a fun audio board. A Todd Um, what? (laughs) Yeah, a Todd what? So it is bonkers. So the big thing to think about is with that extra resolution, the camera's going to be a little slower. Now, 8K 30P is still plenty and 240 and full HD is still plenty, but its autofocus is also going to be a little slower. So the big thing with the X-H2S is like insane autofocus. The autofocus is still going to be pretty good. Like they're definitely like, it will be a great autofocus camera. But if you're like, I'm a sports and action shooter, you're going to go for the speed. The rolling shutter is also not going to be as fast. This was one of the first like sort of press uh, decks I um, saw really like spell out rolling shutter times. And I was like, I wish everybody who rolled out a camera would brag about their rolling shutter times more because it doesn't show up in a lot of press conversations and a lot of tech specs, but it should. So the rolling shutter on the X-H2 is 1 88th of a second, and the rolling shutter on the X-H2S is 1 180th of a second. So it's more than twice as good. Mm. So you're going to get, like, there's going to be way fewer rolling shutter artifacts. And then, you know, you're only getting 13 stops of dynamic range on the 2 because you're getting that high resolution, whereas you're getting 14 stops of dynamic range on the S. I'm going to say, like, I now feel much more comfortable going S. Like, I'm going to go S because that, you know, I, the, the things I end up using the Fuji for the extra speed are really beneficial. It's still 6.2 K resolution ProRes, So that, that crops down beautifully to 4k if you need it for image stabilization or something. And for the kind of stuff I do for the times I pull out the XH one, the autofocus will be killer. But if you're like, well, I do a lot of doc interview stuff, or I'm working on like, projects that are going to like screen on a museum screen. And I know we're finishing 8k knowing that there's like, it's, it's under two grand. It's like 1999, a $2,000 8k ProRes camera with Fuji color. You're going to want to pair it with newer lenses. If you're really focused on that 8k finish, but you know, with the right lenses, having like a real 8k ProRes Fuji is like, 
It's sick as shit. I'm so psyched. So I keep expecting them to come out with a new XT series camera because that's what I shoot. But I think, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to hear that they're, they're kind of getting some better autofocus going and stuff like that. I mean, that's not, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's pretty sick. So what, what's the difference between the, the S one and the, the non S one? It's literally, it's a different sensor. So it's a stacked sensor with a bigger focus on speed. Whereas, so it's a, the S1 has a stacked CMOS and the X-H2 has a 40 megapixel BSI CMOS. So it's really just about speed versus resolution. That's all it is. It is, one is fast and the other has a higher pixel count. Uh, I was shooting X-T2. I was on an X-T2 when the X-H1 came out and I bumped up the X-H1. The X-Ts are also great. The X-Ts are wonderful. And in fact, a lot of people left the X-H1 and went to the X-T4 and then the X-T5 if that is out. Because it was a long time with no XH1 releases. I think what they're getting back to now is they're going to treat the XH as the flagship. And I think we'll see a lot of these features in an XT6 sometime within the next few months. And they're, you know, they're really going to treat the XH as the like video flagship platform. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And yeah, which is what I think they were originally going to do with XH1. And then they sort of dragged their feet on on upgrading it. But I think we'll we'll start to see it upgraded on the same cycle as the XTs. And the autofocus will get a lot better. And uh, object tracking, autofocus, all of that stuff is is a place they're putting a lot of work. And they rolled out, over the course of last year, they've rolled out a whole set of new lenses with ultra-fast autofocus motors. So, you you know, between that, the amazing internal stabilization and the color, we're sort of like entering a nice place with Fuji. And I'm like so happy that they're, uh, they're so back. So do, do the you mix. primarily shoot with the X-series lenses or... Or do you adapt most of the time? Because I, my, I'm, I'm always adapting for my Sigma glass. So, I, ha- I have om- like literally zero experience with their with the Fuji lenses, which I keep almost pulling the trigger on because they look really nice. But I, you it know, was just, the lenses that got me. Yeah. So when I was te- when I was like, all right, I'm finally buying a camera, and I was looking at everything. It was the combination of the color science and the lenses, and I have like five X series lenses, and oh, I'm nice. very happy. Okay. Yeah, their macro is phenomenal. I mean, their macro is gorgeous. Their macro is great. I honestly, it's funny because I'm thinking about buying the X-H2 and I was like, do I go for a zoom? Like I have their, like, they're really kind of famous for like, they have an 18 to 135 zoom that's very popular. And I almost never shoot it to the point where I might sell it because the primes are just so nice. Even their pancake is really nice. So like the lenses are great. The lenses are not very cine style. Like they're very, like the one I'm shooting right now doesn't even have an aperture ring. Mm. It's like... You know, it, it is, they're very focused on Com- compact. Still. Yeah. But they make two Cine X mount lenses, the MK zooms that I've shot two projects on that I was like, oh, these are phenomenal. These are beautiful. They're truly parfocal. They're really nice. They've got like a really nice texture to them. So, I mean, the lenses are a big part of the appeal. For me, when I end up taking out the Fuji, because I've got a couple, I've got a Blackmagic 6K Pro and a 12K that I use if I'm using anything PL mount. I have a PL adapter for the Fuji, but I don't use it very much. I'm really like the Fuji is coming out because I'm doing something where like it literally is a like, okay, I'm going to be like in the mix at a protest or a march or like something where I need the smallest camera possible. And that's why I'm like so often out with primes because it's like, I don't even like, yeah, I'm going to miss out on something by not having my full zoom range, but like one or two primes going to weigh less and I'm going to be able to get like most of the street style stuff I want to get with that. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. 
Yeah, I, I did like a fashion thing with the MK Zooms that I thought came out really well. That was nice. So, yeah. I mean, we've got a second. Should we talk about a second tech news, a surprise tech news? Go for it. Whoa. Well, yes. Tom, it's your tech news. Oh, yeah. Um, well, the, uh, Atlas just came out with some new... Uh, it's, it's the Atlas Mercury... Atlas Orion Mercury series. And these are basically... They just... They're 1.5 squeeze... And they're, I think the the three lens set comes in at like around 15K. Yeah. So w- with the pre order price, which is incredible. That's around what, like six, seven grand lower than their old set. And uh, they've got a 36, 42, 54, 72, and 95 ready to go, which, you know, I'm, I'm just stoked because I, I, you know, I, this whole time I kind of imagined that they were probably, building up some money to do a, a, a more like an easier to access release. Cause for a while the, the Orion series lenses were kind of like, you know, you'd, you'd order them and you'd have to wait a while to get them kind of deal. And it seems like these are a little bit more mass produced in a, in a good way, probably a little more quality control behind it. Cause I, I, we actually talked a little bit briefly before we hopped on the podcast that there has been some, you know, from, from lens set to lens set on the old batch, uh, they, there seemed to be a little bit of differences between, between sets, but yeah, I'm a big fan of what Atlas is doing. I, I've, I've my, my entire career as a DP, I've been on the hunt for an easy way to be an, uh, anamorphic owner. And I mean, not not as to say 15K is easy, but it's easy comparatively speaking to a lot of the other options out there. And I think we're just more and more moving towards, you know, shooting anamorphic just being a lot easier thing to access. So they look phenomenal. I would have preferred 2X squeeze, but these four, I think like if you think about it, if you're going to be an owner of, of a set of lenses like this, I kind of feel like 1.5 is probably a little bit safer of an option because you're going to be able to use it for more more things, not everything you want that that full on two x squeeze uh, look for. But yeah, they're they they're you know they're like two point three pounds per lens, so you, you know they're they're pretty light and they look they look kind of smaller. They're the one of my biggest beefs about the old set was the um, I can't remember what the the highest focal. I think it was an eighty five. It I feel was, like in series two they had a hundred, but the series one yeah was I think an they did. But the, those more telephoto lenses were like. It was like the difference between, you know, like putting a normal lens on your camera and then putting like a giant ENG lens on your camera. Those suckers were big. So, you know, if you had to bust out that one, it was like, you know, you'd have to really rebalance everything. But I mean, this one is the 72 does look a little bit bigger, but nowhere near as much bigger than the, the old one. So, yeah, I mean, I just I'm, I'm stoked because of nothing else. This is the type of lens set that I've been waiting for someone to drop where the old price tag of seven to nine K on the old set coming down to like around five per lens is, is definitely a little more in my comfort zone, especially, you know, this is the, these are the type of lenses that you're going to be able to probably rent out to other people and, you know, build a little bit of your business off of. So, you know, I think, I think it would be a good investment and, and it's kind of in that nice owner operator investment price range rather than, you know, dropping 70K on a three lens set, you know, for the price of, you know, getting a high-end cinema camera or mid-tier cinema camera, you can have a full set of anamorphic lenses now, which, and, you know, you're not having to deal with any adapters or anything like that because I've, 
I've literally gone down the adapter route. I think every other year for my entire career, I go, okay, maybe this one will, this one will work. And then, you know, I use it on one gig and, and sell it immediately because it's just way too annoying to deal with adapters. So yeah, I think between this and, and those cool ones from Saray, the other, like a few months back. Um, I well, think Lawa has a nice set. The Lawa set. Yeah, that one yeah. looks really cool. Which are now out in PL mount. That was um, the other thing. That, oh, yeah. They were originally not PL and then they just launched in PL like a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I missed that. Okay, cool. I missed it too. And everyone was shouting at me in the YouTube comments for my video because I said that it wasn't available in PL. And then, so I went and checked and it was. And I was like, guys, I made this video in April. Like, Man. you can't expect me to like know the future. It cracks me up how how few people check the date on uploads. Like, I had a video on my YouTube channel where the whole thing, when I was out out, out and about, I had a mask on. And some, I shot this like literally in like the summer of 2020. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I got like four comments from people being like, dude, why are you still wearing a mask? <laughs> so like, quickly to be mean yeah, on the internet. The, the, What's your li- problem? Literally people being like, like, this video is good except your unnecessary mask wearing. And I was like, dude, this is, this is a three-year-old video at this point. What are you talking about? <laughs> So funny, but uh, yeah, I think finally, I, I, I honestly, I thought it was going to happen a lot sooner than it has. Apparently, making anamorphic lenses is pretty tough because I expected, like, you know, uh, I guess did Rokinon did launch a set, right? I've never seen Rokinon anamorphics, but I'm going to look up right now. I think. They, I mean, I, I think was there's like say, a zine anamorphic, maybe. Or the, I, I just want to like give a brief primer for those of us who don't know what we're talking about, but still. Hey, there's a Rokinon Zine 2X Anamorphic that came out when? How did I completely miss this drop? Yeah, because like, you're kind of a Zine guy, right? You like the Zines. Yeah, I, I shoot the Zine CFs all the time. I love them. They're beautiful. They're like shock. Oh, the, these came out in... Okay, so the press releases is last November. So somehow I just missed it when it launched. I don't... Well, I gotta be honest. The good thing you noticed or else you'd get yelled at on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Via typing. <laughs> You don't even know about the... Um, no, I think uh, the reason I have... I, I just looked at some of the screen grabs and I didn't I didn't really dig the look very much. But depends on what you're going for. Again, I think that there's like something to be said for if you're going to be an owner-operator of some anamorphic glass. I, I feel like you don't want too much of a built-in look because then everything you shoot forever is going to look the same. So I do kind of like having like the zine ones that the, the look isn't that burning. So maybe there's something to be said for that. Cause you know, I, I, I used to shoot, I had a, a set of like vintage contacts primes that I used for like six years and I can't stand like half of everything I shot. Cause it all kind of feels and looks the same. And uh, yeah, I should, I, you know, so yeah, switch it up with your lenses. Don't, don't let that happen. Cause you'll look back at your reel and be like, Oh my God. I just shot the same thing like over and over and over. And I was really into one particular LUT for a long time too, apparently. So, <laughs> Oh, it is so awkward sometimes when you go back and you're like, oh, that was the year that everything had too much backlight. Yep. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> I had that year. Yeah. The I year, mean, you know, the there are DPs who have that decade. You Leekos on every single thing and oh just backlit the hell out of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. 2007, baby. <laughs> um, Man, not, not I, much. For me, yeah. that was like 20... 2017. So <laughs> I'm glad you learned that lesson sooner than I did. 
it, I mean, it was a fun year. I was having a great time. Um, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it's it's funny how these aesthetic things. But I just wanted to flag one thing, which is the 1.5Xs work better on a 16.9 sensor. So a lot of times, like if you shoot 2X anamorphics on a 16.9 sensor, the image you end up getting, you have to crop off the sides because it's like 2.8 to 1 when you are done. You're taking that 16.9 sensor and you're doubling it. So it's like basic, it's almost three to one how wide it is. And then you have to yeah, zoom it in on the shot. And you, the you can't use it. And it and you have to, yeah, you have to zoom in a bunch, you lose a bunch of resolution. So but like 1.5x anamorphics and a 16.9 sensor. Oh, such a good combo. Yeah. And then, you know, if you what is the what is the aspect ratio you get if you shoot in an anamorphic mode? Like if you have a black magic, do you get is that you get like a two point is that Oh, if you have a black magic that does proper anamorphic because the sensor size is right, you, you get, end up you get with two, three, five, right? Yeah, yeah. two, three, nine. I think. Yeah, two, three, nine. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, this has been the No Film School podcast this week. We did some HR. We tried to get canceled. We'll let George tell us <laughs> if we were canceled. Um, you can find me on the internet. I'm Charles Hain. I make YouTube videos at Charles Hain, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and I make movies and stuff. And I have a movie coming up, Gold Status, that you'll hear a lot of articles about as we get closer to finishing. And uh, yeah, talk to you guys next week. I'm Gigi Hawkins. I'm at Lost in Graceland. And if this comes out on Thursday and you're listening on Thursday or Friday of this week, we have our abortion access fundraiser show happening at the Dynasty Typewriter. Buy tickets and $30 of your $25 ticket goes to the abortion access fund. And we have some No Film School podcast listeners making sketches, including John Clark in Michigan and Lindsay St. Laurent in LA. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be hilarious. It's hosted by Greg Santos. Come to laugh and and be angry together. Nice. That's amazing. Um, I am Todd Blankenship. You can find me on Instagram and YouTube at Am I a Filmmaker? And then everything is also up at nofilmschool.com. Everything that's ever been created is there. Ever. Yell at it if it's from the past and <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> you don't know why it didn't know the future. Yes. Thank <laughs> you.